So let's jump right in to the passage this morning. We're in the final series, final sermon I should say, of a series that we started four or five weeks ago called Blind Spots. And I've titled it that because that concept is all over the place in this passage. It goes before this, you're going to see it after this. Um, This section is all about spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness that the disciples suffered from and the spiritual blindness that so often we suffer from as well. They were blind to what Jesus was showing them. They saw, but only partially. And they were deaf to what Jesus was teaching them. They heard, but only partially. Um, So they didn't see clearly. They didn't hear clearly. And listen, if we're honest this morning, and if we're humble, uh, I don't even like to rank Christianity, but let's just say the best Christian in here, if he or she was humble and honest, you would have to confess that, okay, I see, but I don't see clearly as I would like to. And I hear the words and the commandments of Jesus, but I don't hear them as, as clearly as I would like to. And I'm certainly not obeying God the way that I would like to. Um, so as Jesus reveals more and more of himself to us, uh, we're going to see how the disciples responded in this passage. This passage has been called the transfiguration. And you won't really find that word anywhere in this passage. Um, in fact, this is a really strange event. I'll be honest with you. It was really hard to prepare. I love preaching. I love studying God's Word. I love writing sermons. This was a challenge to write a sermon on this because, listen, as a preacher, I am called to present Christ to you every single week. That's my job. That's my calling, to show you Christ so that, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold Christ, as we see His glory, unveiled glory, the Bible says we are transformed into that very same image from one level of glory to the next. And how does that happen? Well, one of the ways is we experience and encounter the glory of Christ in preaching. So my job and my calling and my prayer is that every single week I would show you, unveil for you um, the glory of Christ. And this is a passage, it's all about glory, but it's really hard to ascertain and, and get underneath, okay, why is this here? This is really, really unique. You will not find anything like this in any other religion in the world. There's no transfiguration anywhere. There's a lot of parallels in Christianity that even some skeptics and some critics say, yeah, they borrowed that from this creation account over here, or they borrowed the miracles and the, cruci- you know, the death of God. They borrowed that from this. There's no transfiguration anywhere. It's completely unique to Christianity, and it's a little bit odd. What in the world? What is going on here? This is strange. But it's not unique to the Old Testament. Something like this happened in the Old Testament too, and we're going to see some parallels here. But basically, Jesus, as you heard as Amber read, he takes his closest followers up on top of a very high mountain because he wants to show them something. He wants to show them his glory. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Only a few people, this is like a private viewing. It's like an early screening of a, of a blockbuster movie coming out. Only the privileged, only three VIPs get to go with Jesus. And what they encounter and experience on that mountain is, is stunning. They were thunderstruck. This is just, it flabbergasted them. They, they were like bowled over, one version says. This is so important that it's not only in Mark's gospel account, you know, the New Testament, there's four accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain their version of this story. And sometimes it's helpful to kind of piece the pieces piece the, the, the different accounts together. Uh, Matthew gives us information, Mark doesn't. Luke gives us information, Mark doesn't. So I'm borrowing a little bit from them, you'll see as we go along here, so that we can uh, piece this together and, 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 and see what's this here for? Why is this there? That's the question I'm after as a preacher. 
Um, and this is not some clever outline. And in fact, I'm just going to just kind of share what I believe God has shown me about this passage. But there's three questions I believe that this passage um, answers for us as Christians. Three critical questions, honestly, that no, lo- no matter if you're an unbeliever or if you're, you've been a disciple all your life or maybe you're in between, not that there is such a thing, but say you're curious, you're seeking truth, and you really want to know more, you want to explore investigate Christianity, these three questions are critical for you. So everybody here hopefully will be helped. This passage answers the three questions here. Question number one, who is Jesus? The, the, the message, the title of the message this morning is the unveiled Jesus. Question number one, who is Jesus? We see that answered here. Question two, why did he come? You know, a lot of people you talk to about Christianity in the world, they can't answer this question. They know Jesus existed. They know he was crucified. Many people that saw the passion that Mel Gibson did over a decade ago, uh, nothing was shocking in that movie, but it didn't answer the question, why? Why did that happen? Why did Jesus come? And thirdly, how should we respond to it? Those are the three questions we're going to see um, answered in this passage. So number one, let's jump right in. Who is Jesus? Now, you need to understand, why in the world is Jesus doing this? Well, he wants to reveal to them who he really is. He wants them to see um, the nature, the essence of, of who he is. They've seen a lot of things. They've seen miracles. They've heard amazing teaching that's left everyone floored. They've seen him silence the religious hypocrites. Um, but as far as getting a glimpse of who Jesus really is, they haven't gotten that yet. And they're about to. And Jesus knows they need this. See, this is a really, really dark, discouraging time for them. Do you guys remember what happened just before this? This is like the apex of the book of Mark. 16 chapters. First eight chapters um, comes to this point right here where Jesus gives a pop quiz to his disciples. He says, listen, who do men say that I am? You remember he asked, they said, oh, some said you're one of the prophets like Elijah. Uh, Herod even thinks you, 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 know, you come back from the dead, you're John the Baptist. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the others, for, for all 12 of them. He said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed king that we've all been taught would come and rescue Israel. All our lives, every Jewish kid from the time they were bounced on their mom's knee, they would hear about this coming Messiah who's going to reign, he was going to end evil He was going to stop oppression and injustice and conquer whatever nation was oppressing Israel. That's who they viewed the Messiah as. But they missed the suffering servant. And so Jesus said, that's right, I'm the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah you think I am. He said, in fact, I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. He starts talking about suffering and rejection and hate and enmity and hostility. And Peter can't handle it. And he says, no, 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 no. He takes Jesus aside, the Lord of glory. Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. And he says, this will never happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not mindful of the things of of God, but only the things of men. So this is a really sad time for them, right? They've been hearing about death and about suffering and about rejection, shame, persecution, agony. They don't like it. And we wouldn't either. I mean, who likes talking about a cross as the symbol of your movement? We got this great movement going, uh, and it starts on a wooden cross. What a bummer. (laughs) I mean, it would be like this young president that just got elected to a nation, okay? He's young, he's capable, he's competent, he's got answers, he's going to end hunger, he's going to eliminate poverty, he's going to protect the citizens, he's going to boost the economy, 
And people are ready. And he gets voted in office. And the very first speech he makes, he announces he has a terminal illness and he'll be dead in seven days. That's basically how the disciples feel. I want to take you here and let you know what they're thinking. They're crushed. Mildly disappointed just doesn't do it justice. They are in agony. They can't fathom how in the world is our leader, our master, this man who claims to be the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem so he can die? What in the world? Jesus knows that. He knows they need a boost. They need hope. And look, many of you need hope too, right? That's why this is here. Jesus wants to reveal who he is for you today, wherever you're at. Because Jesus is wanting to show them and us that suffering and glory are not mutually exclusive realities. They're not incompatible. As a matter of fact, they're inextricably linked together. You can't get to glory without suffering. That's the only way to get to it. And Christianity is the only religion, if you want to call it a religion, that makes that claim. There is no cro- there's no crown without a cross. There's no glory without suffering. It can't happen. That's the only way to get there from here, Jesus is saying. But he knows they need hope. So just for a second, just for a second, it's almost as if Jesus is Clark Kent, okay? But for one second, he takes the disciples up and he goes, and he pulls his shirt open, and there's this emblazoned S there. And he flies around, and they're like, dang, man. And then he tucks his shirt back in and puts his glasses on and slicks his hair back and says, we got to go back to the Daily Planet now. But you know who I really am, you know? It's one of those, there's nothing really heroic about it. He doesn't fly down the mountain and conquer his enemies. Nothing like that. It's just Jesus pulling back the veil of his human flesh and showing them what lies underneath. And it's pretty incredible. And you know we see things like this. Have you guys seen, there's a show that I used to watch called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that? And it's usually some high-ranking executive, CEO, or sometimes the owner of this multi-billion or multi-million dollar company. Uh, And he goes undercover. And he takes like an entry-level employee job. And it's usually something like this. He's scrubbing toilets, plunging, unclogging toilets, or scrubbing the floors. And he's got a false pseudo name and... uh, you know, he's got a backstory to cover his true identity, and he, want, he wants to know, how does my company really work? And he wants to meet the people at the bottom that make it happen. And sometimes there's a termination involved, you know, because they're complaining, the stupid owner of this get-up doesn't know what he's doing. He's like, oh, is that right? You know, but there's always this unveiling at the last episode, and this guy walks in, and he's in a million-dollar pinstripe suit carrying a, you know, crocodile, I don't know, covered briefcase. And they reveal, hey, this is actually the owner, and you had no idea who you were working with. And it's amazing. And you know what? From that point forward, they never view their job the same again because the millionaire has stooped down. I mean, he's had a (laughs) poop-scented plunger that he's, you know, unstopped toilets with them. He's he's suffered with them, you know. Now they view their job differently. They, They not only know who they're suffering for, they know who they suffered with. It's kind of that idea. I mean, you see it in athletics too. Sometimes they'll take a, an NBA superstar and they'll doctor him up to look like he's 90 years old. Have you seen this? And they'll send him out in makeup and let him play a pickup basketball game and he's dunking and doing reverse and they're like, who is this grandpa? And then it's like, LeBron James, ta-da! You had no idea. It's the same thing with Jesus here, even though that's, that pales in comparison to, to what he's actually doing. There's no pretense here. There's nothing fake about this. This is truly Jesus revealing his glory. Do you know that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? It actually says he's the brightness of God's glory. He is God shining forth. You know, it's interesting. 
Jesus went up on this mountain, and there's some parallels to what happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to reveal God to them. He goes up on a high mountain. He takes his closest followers. There's glory up there. There's a cloud. There's a booming voice. Sounding familiar a little bit? This happened in Exodus too, didn't it? And they went to the top of the mountain, and Moses is begging God to reveal his glory. And God says, you can't see me. It will obliterate you. It will, it will insinuate you into a million... Is that even the right word? Yeah, like a... Like you, you, yeah, you put somebody in a furnace or something, right? <laughs> it's going to nuke you, Moses. You can't see it. So I'll cover you in the cleft of a rock and you can see the hind parts of my glory. So Jesus is different though, see? Because when Moses saw the hind parts of God's glory, the glory in his face, it reflected for a long time. He walked down the mountain and everyone was freaking out because Moses' face was glow in the dark, you know? But Jesus' face, one of the versions says, in Matthew, I believe, that his face was shining like the noonday sun when he revealed himself. Except here's the difference. Moses was reflecting the glory of God like the moon reflects the sun, right? But Jesus is the glory of God. You know, light was shining onto Moses and reflecting off on the disciples, but the Bible says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The apostle John in 1 John, one of the first things he said is, this is the message that we have heard from him and now declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. This is Jesus pulling back the veil of his human flesh and showing who he really is because, listen, these disciples need that. They need that for the bad news they've just heard. The bad news they just heard is, guess what? There's going to be death and rejection and suffering. But they need good news. And Jesus says this, the one you are suffering for is also the one you're suffering with. And guys, I want to show you who I really am. Come with me. This would galvanize the disciples for what lies ahead. Because all of them have their own crosses to pick up. All of them have to do what Jesus said and deny themselves, right? And that's not an encouraging message to hear. So they need to be galvanized for what's ahead. And guys, we do too. This is so, this is so important. This is so important in this message. This may be the most important takeaway point. It's Jesus, why is Jesus revealing who he is to these people? This is Mark's gospel. Mark is writing to Christians who were Gentiles who lived in Rome. And this was written about the time that a man named Nero was in charge. He was the emperor of Rome. Do you guys know what Nero did to Christians? He was one of the first rulers, Gentile rulers, who started persecuting Christians. He would light them on fire. He would sew them up in animal skins. He would make them fight wild animals in the Colosseum just for the fact, to, just for the entertainment of Rome. So Mark was writing to those Christians, they needed this. They needed to be galvanized. They needed to see glory. Jesus is showing them God's glory. They needed to see it, and we needed to see it too. Uh, a lot of people didn't really know what to do with this. With this. You know, scholars don't really know what to do with the transfiguration. Why is it here? Even some artists... Did you know Raphael painted this? He considered it his life's greatest work. It took him four years to do this, and he never finished it. And I, I'm sorry, Raphael, I don't think you got it, man. Jesus didn't go up there and just float. Uh, in fact, if you tried to depict this, it would just be one blob of bright white or yellow paint. Um, Jesus didn't go up on the mountain and just do some hocus-pocus. He went up there and revealed who he truly was. And the disciples that were there with him, Peter, James, and John, they were never the same. It impacted these men. Even 30 years later, I'll show you, they were still just blown away by what they had seen, what they experienced. And do you know that Peter, one day, not only would he pick up his own cross, 
he would be attached to it upside down. Did you know that Peter was crucified upside down? History tells us. He knew they were going to crucify him because he belonged to Christ and he was teaching about Christ. But he didn't feel worthy to be executed the same way that his master was. So he requested that they turn the cross upside down and let him be crucified upside down while his wife um, and family watched him, is what tradition says. Pretty unbelievable. James was up there. Do you know what happened to James in Acts chapter 12? Herod cuts his head off. He was martyred for his faith. They needed to see that the one they were suffering for was also the one they were suffering with and that this same glory that he revealed to them, one day they would experience that. One day they wouldn't have to come down off the mountain. They could stay there forever with Christ and enjoy the reality of who he is. Tim Keller said it like this. He said, as soon as Peter says you are the Christ, Jesus immediately explains that he has to die. Jesus will now speak of his death and suffering in ways that the disciples find extremely hard to swallow. So the second half of Mark's gospel will show us why the cross was necessary and what it accomplished. What seemed like it might become a story of triumph is going to look more and more like a tragedy. So suffering and glory, Jesus is showing them, look, this is, this is not plan B. This has been my plan all along. The way to glory is through suffering. And we have to be reminded of that too as Christians. Because man, it's hard to learn this lesson when you're in the middle of suffering. I mean, even if it's not specifically and exclusively for Jesus, just living life in a fallen body, in a fallen world, you're going to meet heartache. I went to a funeral yesterday for a, a young man, some of you may know, B.J. Davis. He died last week. He was a young man in his prime, and he was out on a dock in the middle of the night, and he disappeared. And there was all kinds of stuff flying around. What happened? His disappearance is mysterious. If you have any details, well, it turns out B.J., he either dropped his phone in the Halifax River, and he jumped in to get it, or it was dark and slippery down there, and he went down there to look at the water, and he fell in. I think he jumped in to get his phone because his shoes were there and his wallet was there. But B.J. couldn't swim. He couldn't swim. And so the detectives were looking for him everywhere. They had scuba divers go down, and they found his body. And I went to the funeral yesterday, and I watched his mother stand up and give one of the most... I, there's, no, there's no words to really describe. Linda, you were there. It was amazing. It was amazing. She was ministering to... I mean, the mother of the young man whose body was found just days ago. And, and, and her faith is solid. She's just anchored. Now, her son was a Christian. And that matters. Definitely matters. But her faith was rock solid. And then the man, uh, Rick Cobb, who got up, a pastor at Riverbend, and preached the funeral, he looked at her and he said, uh, Candace, I was there with you this week. I was there when the detectives came to your house and when they told you that they had just found the body of your son. And he said, and I, and I watched you collapse to the floor. And then we prayed together. She collapsed on the floor. She wept, as any of us would who have children. And that's got to be the hardest thing in the world is to bury your child. But he said, you collapsed on the floor and then you rejoiced and you cried out to God and said, glory. And I'm thinking, what in the world? How, how, how can that happen? How can somebody who, who gets news like that go from suffering to glory in the next moment? How can that happen? See, this is the answer right here. This is the answer. She, she had a taste of what the, these disciples understood and saw on that mountain. This is what Colossians calls Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. See, they didn't have that hope yet. This is way back before they knew all the epistles that we know. 
See, we're looking in hindsight at this. We're the armchair quarterback. We're the backseat driver. We're like, why didn't they get it? Because they don't have a completed Bible like we do. But Jesus is slowly starting to lift the veil and show them, look, guys, you don't understand. There is a cross in our path, but you, ha- you have to know the glory that awaits me and you on the other side of it. This galvanizes you for suffering. It does. So Luke chapter 9 tells us a little bit more about this. He says in verse 32, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. And it also says down at the bottom there that they were afraid. There's this cloud that overshadowed them eventually. Uh, when, when Elijah and when Moses were there, they appeared. Another version in I think Luke, it says they went up and they were praying and they were so sad that the disciples fell asleep. And when they awoke, they saw Jesus. And Mark tells us that he was transfigured before them. I mean, this is, this is I believe, the greatest miracle between the birth of Jesus uh, and the resurrection of Christ. This is the greatest miracle, but you don't find it. You don't find it listed in very many groups of miracles in the New Testament. Jesus was transfigured right before their eyes. The Bible says that his face shone with intense brightness. Can you imagine what it would have been like? I mean, I'm like, Mark, a little more details, please. I want to know what, what went down. What did this look like? There's nothing that we can even compare it to. Jesus was transfigured. That word is the word from which we get metamorphosis. It's used only a couple of other times in the Bible. In Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized. Um, into the image of Christ. It's used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when it says we, we are transformed in the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next. What does it mean? Well, meta means change. Meta means change. And, and morph is, is a form. So Jesus actually changed forms right in front of them and became the glorious, radiant, beautiful, immense God that He is. Every time that there is a revealing of God in the Bible... It's so hard for us to comprehend, and God knows that. He stoops to accommodate our ignorance and our, and our inability, and he always talks about this bright light. There's always beauty, there's always majesty, there's always awe, and there's always fear. Sometimes you'll see, like, there's a rainbow. I mean, have you ever read Ezekiel 1? It's interesting, man. People that don't believe in the Bible, they've read Ezekiel 1, and that's their proof that there's UFOs. <laughs> Seriously. It's, it's Ezekiel trying to describe the glory of God that he saw. And he talks about flashing lights, circles, eyes, rainbows, crystals. It's pretty amazing. Some people think that Ezekiel was tripping a little bit, you know. It'd be neat some shrooms or something. But listen, it's just trying to put in human language what the glory of God looks like. And you can't describe it. It's like trying to describe beauty. Have you ever tried to describe beauty to somebody in words that makes sense in grammar? You can't. It's something you have to experience. I mean, the first time I saw Sarah, she worked at a Christian bookstore. And I had heard by the hearing of the ear. But when I went in, where's she at? There she is. Still radiant. When I went in and saw Sarah Marshall for the first time, oh my word, man. It was like I was thunderstruck. I had never seen a creature that beautiful in my entire life. And I was hooked for good. She had me, man with like a treble hook with barbs in it, Tal. I wasn't going anywhere. She had me. But how would I describe that beauty? I couldn't. I couldn't put it in the words. And Jesus didn't tell them about his glory. He had to show it to them. He had to show it to them because they couldn't have comprehended it. He just tried to tell them. 
So he took them to the top of this mountain and he revealed himself. I remember in 1985, there was a movie that came out. Ron Howard uh, produced this extraterrestrial kind of movie with Wilford Brimley in it and a couple of other people. Do you remember it was about extraterrestrial like aliens from another life? And they were coming to Earth and they wanted to... Uh, it's, a, it's a really twisted uh, plot. But I remember there's one point in the movie where one of the aliens pulls back his skin to reveal who he truly is. And there was like this brilliant, blinding flash of light. And that's, I mean, we, we have to make movies about aliens to even comprehend probably what they saw on the top of that mountain. It was amazing. Every time God chooses to reveal himself, it's like this Shekinah, Shekinah light, this glory. It's blinding and it's terrorizing. The word used in Mark 9 is ekphobos. They were terrified. It's the word phobos, phobia for fear, and there's a preposition attached if you're a Greek nerd. There's a preposition slapped on the front of it, which intensifies it. They were struck out of their mind. They were exceedingly fearful. They didn't know what to say, which is why Peter said the stupid thing that he did. They didn't know how to act. Another version says they fell down on their faces. They were floored. Here's this man they've been following for three years, and he takes him up on a mountain and says, Guys, this glory you've been reading about all your life, this essence of God, this power, this beauty, this majesty, I'm the essence of that. And they would have never forgotten it. They would have never forgotten it. And in fact, this is Peter writing 30 years after this happened. And he's writing to people, and he's trying to protect them from false teachers. And he's telling them, look, we've been telling you, me and my friends have been telling you about Jesus and this is not a fable that we've been telling you. This is something that we were eyewitnesses to. And you would think, okay, if you were Peter, you saw everything Peter saw, you experienced everything Peter did, what would you tell them about? You would say, I'm telling you, he stopped the storm dead in its tracks. He raised a young girl to life. She was dead. Lazarus had been dead three days. He doesn't mention any of those things. You know what he mentions? Check this out. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. No doubt about it, Peter's talking about this. 30 years after it happened, he had never forgotten it. And I'm sure when he was being crucified upside down, he knew what was coming. I'm about to experience the glory that I saw on that mountain. And it's not going to be veiled this time. It's going to be the full strength. It's going to be Jesus in 1080 or 4K now, right? He's not going to be diluted any. It's going to be the full measure. And John, the apostle John was with him. And John opened up his gospel by saying this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Have you ever put those together? When John said, we've seen his glory, have you ever put the pieces together? That's right, John did see his glory. He and James and Peter, they saw his glory on the mountain in a way no other disciple ever did. And it changed their lives forever. And listen, it should change our lives too, because we know no matter what suffering that we're going through, this is the glory that's going to belong to us one day. This is the glorious one with whom we follow and whom can identify with us. We delight in him, he delights in us that's what this is about. When we start talking about glory, it's a really hard concept to understand. The word in Hebrew means weightiness. It's the word kabod in Hebrew. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book called The Weight of Glory. 
That's probably the one English word that we can wrap our minds around that help us understand what glory means. So when Jesus took them up on top of the mountain and showed them his glory, what did he show them? He showed them his heaviness, his weightiness, his value. That's what glory means. You could say the glory of gold is what? It's how heavy it is. That's how important it is. People used to even say that in the 70s. Man, that's heavy. <laughs> they kind of understood. That's glorious. They're getting, you're just starting to get underneath what that word really means. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, God's glory is defined this way. The outshining of his internal excellence. That's what glory is. And listen, maybe this would be where the rubber meets the road for you in this message. Every single person in this room today wants glory. We all do. We all want to be important. We all want to be heavy. We all want our lives to be weighty and to be meaningful. That's why people set up, you know, trust funds in their name or want a plaque on a building or want something named after them. We all want to remain, right? We know that this life is a vapor and it's passing and we want our lives to be significant. That's what glory is. That's what it really means. Matt Papa wrote a book. And it's one of my favorite books of all times outside of the Bible. It's, it's a book called Look and Live, and the whole thing is about the glory of God. And he's a worship leader, and he writes unlike any scholar you've ever read, so it's really readable and accessible. And I would recommend that book to anybody in here. Can't recommend it enough. But he said this. He said, The reason God commands us to love Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength is not because He's an egomaniac. It's because he knows that anything we love more than him will betray us. Eventually we lose it, either by its death or by ours. And besides that, our worship of it will crush us. Because listen, we're all after glory here, and we attach uh, our quest for glory onto something that can't possibly carry it. Right? Our kids, our job, our career, our health, our beauty, our money, our wealth. We, we attach worship and weight to those things and it crushes them and it crushes us because those things were never designed to carry the need we have for this glory that Jesus showed them on the mountain. Never. Here's another quote by Matt. I put this one up for you because this is good. That's what he looks like. I can read a dude that looks like that, can't you? Looks like he'd be a fun guy to hang out with. He says this, God is the only thing large enough and interesting enough to bear the weight of glory. And ultimately, worship. Anything else will break our heart. Now listen to this. Listen to what he's saying. Money isn't secure enough. Sex isn't thrilling enough. Entertainment isn't impressive enough. Music isn't interesting enough. Food isn't satisfying enough. People aren't reliable enough. The world isn't good enough. Creation isn't permanent enough. We were created by God and for God. And until we understand that, we are restless broken-hearted, glory chasers, always seeking something more. Only God, the highest and greatest good, the infinite Holy One, is finally enough. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus is better than anything that prosperity can give you, and Jesus is better than anything that adversity can take away from you. The kind of glory that Jesus shows those disciples, suffering is not a threat to that. Suffering is the path to that. That's what Jesus is telling them. God's glory, Jesus Christ, is the only thing you can attach the weight of your worship to. He's the only thing that your quest for glory will end with satisfaction in. It's the only thing. 
because he's the brightness of God's glory. The light didn't shine on Jesus, it shined from Jesus, and it blew them away, and it should blow us away too. Here's the second point, okay? So, why is this here? One, Jesus wants us to see who he truly is. He is what Colossians 1.15 calls the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is here representing God in human flesh. He's revealing that to his disciples. And the second thing is, why did he come? Why did Jesus come? This transfiguration event shows why he came. But you don't see it in Mark's, you don't see it in Mark's version. You see it in Luke's version. And I want to show you that again. So check this out. And behold, two men were talking with him. That's um, Jesus. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, full stop. Hit the pause button there. Mark says Elijah and Moses were there and that they were talking with Jesus. But Luke says what they were talking about. I mean, wouldn't you want to know? If you were one of those disciples, you went up on the mountain. Jesus says, ta-da, I'm God. And I'm a lot more glorious than you ever imagined. And then poof, poof, Elijah and Moses in their glory appear. And they're talking. I'd want to know what the guys are talking about. Wouldn't you? What are those dudes talking about? I want to, I want to eavesdrop. Well, they can. They can hear them. And you know what they're talking about? They're not talking about Moses, the Ten Commandments, the exodus of Moses. They're not talking about the plagues and how Pharaoh was decimated and all the false gods and goddesses. They're not talking with Elijah about how he went up in a chariot to heaven. He escaped death seemingly, right? Do you know what they're talking about? They are talking about the death of Jesus. The word in Greek here for departure is actually Exodus, that's the word. Only time I believe it's ever used in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Jesus mentions his exodus, which is his death. He's about to accomplish it down on the bottom of the mountain. And Peter's like, gets all satanic. Like, no, 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 you can't do this. This won't happen. This is not the way to glory. But up on top of the mountain, Jesus is talking about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. They're not stressing. You know why? Because they wrote about it. This is not plan B. The cross has been plan A all along. Moses wrote about the Exodus, his own and Jesus. And Elijah, he was the premier prophet in Israel. He understood the Exodus. It had to happen. Those two guys were like the two men in the Old Testament. They were the most reliable witnesses, even more than David and Abraham. They also experienced some, some pretty cool... Uh, ways of dying. Do you remember how Elijah died? Well, he didn't. You remember what happened to him? Second Kings 17, I think. He was in a chariot and he was driving all around Israel and then it was a chariot of fire and he went right up into heaven and dropped his mantle on Elisha, his protege. I mean, that's pretty cool, man, right? And then what happened to Moses? He died. Nobody saw it but God. In fact, God buried him. So can you imagine they're up there talking about their exodus? And Elijah's like, man, I didn't even die. My exodus was the chariot. We were going 490 knots or whatever you measure at speed in the air, whatever. And then <laughs> and Moses is like, oh, yeah? Well, God buried me. Um, and then Jesus says, guys, I think I got you beat. His exodus is what they were talking about. They weren't talking about the law on top of the mountain, even though Moses was there. You know what they were talking about? They were talking about the gospel. They were talking about what Jesus was about to accomplish. That word means fulfill, complete. He was about to satisfy all the prophecies and all the law. 
Everything that Elijah and Moses would have written about and looked forward to, Jesus is about to accomplish it. And his ministry overshadowed both of their ministries. So this answers why did Jesus come? He came to die. That's why he came. Elijah testifies to that. Moses testifies to that. It was good for the disciples to be there and see that and hear that and experience that. That's why he came. And this also shows really that Jesus is supreme. Not like a taco. I don't mean that kind of supreme. I mean the supremacy of Jesus. He's untouchable, uh, insurpassable. You know, whenever they saw the glory cloud and they were afraid and then they saw Elijah and Moses. What does Mark say? Look at Mark 9 here. It says, what did Peter say? Verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. See, Peter wanted to put all of them on an equal pedestal, right? And God wasn't having it. God shows up in the Shekinah glory, in this overshadowing cloud, in this booming voice. It's talking to Peter. <laughs> Can you imagine? Peter just got rebuked by the second member of the Trinity before they went up the mountain. Jesus rebuked him, and now God the Father is going to rebuke him. Poor Peter, he's getting it, right? And God the Father rebukes him and says, listen to this, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You hear him, Peter. You haven't been listening to what Jesus has been telling you. You haven't been seeing what he's been showing you. Forget Elijah and Moses. That's why when the, the vision was over, they were gone. And it was just Jesus there, right? So, what's going on here? Jesus came to die. And this event going on top of the mountain, what's going on here? Well, why were they so terrified? Remember this, every time that God manifested and revealed himself to his people, do you know what happened? They were petrified, terrified, struck out of their minds. Because listen, people knew that the presence of God was lethal. If you saw God, you were done. It's like, what do you want on your tombstone? If you're going to see God, that's going to be the end of you. Do you remember Isaiah and the vision he had of the throne room in heaven in, in chapter 6? He saw a vision of God. I think it was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. The train of his robe filled the temple. The angels, the, the seraphim, were, were flying. And with two wings, they covered their eyes because Jesus is too holy to look at in that form. And with two, they covered their feet to remind themselves they were creatures. And they spoke out and they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah saw that. He's a holy prophet. He's a righteous man. He saw that vision of God. And you know what Isaiah said? He said, woe is me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Moses saw a vision of God and he said, I am coming apart at the seams because no man or woman can see God and live. What did Job say when he saw God? You remember this? Job in, in, encountered God in a storm. And he said this, chapter 42, verse 6, I think. He said, Behold, my, eye, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes see you, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. See, these three men on top of that mountain, they know the history of the Old Testament, and they know that when a human being sees God, they die. So they just saw the glory of God, and now all of a sudden there's this glory cloud overshadowing them. One version says they actually enter the glory cloud. The glory of God is like enveloped and swallowed them up. Isn't that what it says here? Look at this. Look at verse 6. 
or verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. So why are they so afraid? They know that they do not deserve to live. Why is that? Let me put it in, in street clothes for you. Whenever you are in the presence of something great, it makes you shrink, right? Whenever you encounter something as glorious and majestic as God, that's terrifying to us because we are profoundly flawed and sinful. And it brings it into relief. It brings it into high definition. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you are the greatest guitar player in your city, in your county, in your state. You've practiced playing guitar for two decades. You've disciplined yourself to your fingers have bled, and you're pretty good. And the whole town recognizes it. And every time there's a get-together, they call you for the entertainment. You can play and smoke comes from your fingers, right? So you're at a party, you're entertaining the guest. Everyone's making all these requests like they do when there's a skilled guitar player there. And you can play them from memory. You don't even have to read sheet music. And you're shredding. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in walks Jimi Hendrix. For those of you that don't know, Jimi Hendrix is like, he's the dude with guitars, okay? He's the original shredder, right, Chris? <laughs> so Jimi Hendrix walks in. What do you do? Your face probably gets red. And you probably think, oh my goodness. Um, you're probably a little bit uncomfortable, especially when you see him pull his guitar out, right? That's kind of a glimpse of what, I mean, that's on such a smaller scale. We could do it with athletics. Uh, if you're a high school sprinter and Usain Bolt walks in the room, how do you feel? Small is the answer, right? Or if you're a Rico Suave in your freshman class and Brad Pitt walks in. I don't, that's probably a bad example. But you get it. Whether it's an athlete or a celebrity or it's like unfathomable human beauty. You remember The Hunchback of Notre Dame? One of the movies made about that, The Hunchback. He finally sees this gypsy girl he's been pursuing, he's in love with. He sees her and he, she, he begins to weep uncontrollably. She says, what is wrong with you? And he says, I've never been in the presence of such beauty. And now that I am, I see my hideousness. I see how ugly I truly am when I'm in the presence of such beauty. And it's the same way with the disciples. When they are in the presence of such majesty and holiness and perfection, they are aware of their flaws and they are terrified. And they know they deserve to die. And it's funny, man. You know what Peter says here? Peter says, look at verse... Uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It says because he was terrified that he said this, but Peter's not stupid. Do you know what, you know what he's saying here? Do you know what God did throughout the Old Testament? He said, because I'm holy, but I love my people, and I want to dwell amongst them, but I don't want to kill them, I'll make a tabernacle. That's what he did. He made a tabernacle, it's a big tent, and there's a little tent inside it called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, dwelt there. And only one man, once a year, could go in there after days of preparation. So Peter is thinking, this is the presence of God, and we are, we're unprotected here. This is not good. We need, to put, we need to put God in a tabernacle is what we need to do. This wasn't about shelter. I've read that. They needed shelter. It was the Feast of Booths and Tabernacle. Come on, that's ridiculous. This is not about shelter. This is about protection. And why do you think that God seemed to get so angry when Peter said that? Because think about this, guys. I'm closing with this, okay? Think about this. Because the first point was, who is Jesus? The second point was, why did he come to die? And the third point is, how do we respond? This, this gets into that. Because God the Father said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. Obey him. Why did he get so upset at what Peter said? Because listen, Jesus is coming to die 
because he is the tabernacle of God. You don't put Jesus in a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. You understand? Jesus came to bridge the gap so that a holy and a just God could dwell with sinful, flawed, rebellious creatures like us. That's what this transfiguration is all about. It's about a holy God coming to dwell amongst a sinful people. And listen, we don't die. We don't get obliterated or incinerated. We don't get thrown in the furnace. Why? Because Jesus experienced that for us. He was obliterated. He faced the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what he was doing on the cross. He faced the full wrath of God in, in its full intensity and fury. So you look at him on the cross, you look at his body, and you know this. That should be your body up there. That should be my body absorbing the wrath of God, and it would tear us to pieces for all eternity. But not Jesus, because he's 100% God, and he's 100% man, and he took that. So we don't get God's wrath, we get God's mercy. And that's why God the Father said, this is my beloved son, hear him, hear his message. Quit trying to sidetrack him and deviate him from his mission. His mission is the cross. That's a good thing for you, Peter, James, and John. That's a necessity for you. And it's a necessity for us too. That's why it's so important that we get this. So this is the one that we're called to follow. This is the one that we pick up our cross, we deny ourselves, and this is the glory that awaits us. And not even all of it. We have the same glory that that mother did at the funeral. This, this anchors our soul. This galvanizes us for suffering. This is an important event in the life of the disciples, and it's an important event for us. Do you know do you know this glorious God that was unveiled on this mountain? Are you following Him? Have you obeyed the voice of the Father? This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen, what areas in your life are you trying to attach the weight of your worship to in ways that dishonor Him? What are you crushing with your worship when it belongs to Christ? He's the only one glorious enough to handle the weight of our expectations and our hopes. That's why suffering and glory are not incompatible, guys. Because listen, when suffering happens, two things take place. One, um, either the treasure that you were trusting in is taken away. And two, the true treasure that you fall back on is made more real to you. That's what suffering does. And that's how suffering and glory are connected. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Would you pray with me?